Hey there, just a few things about the first couple of episodes before I start the interview today. I know the intro episode was a little bit formal, but bear with me. I am still learning this whole process of recording, editing, and preparing these for you to listen to, so just stick with me and I promise it will get better. In this first episode, you may hear some issues that we had with recording The internet connection wasn't that great, and hopefully it isn't something that will be distracting, but I just wanted to warn you up front. And lastly, you may hear the podcast mascot making an appearance at some points throughout the episode. That would be my golden retriever, Whiskey. So if you hear it and you are curious about him, feel free to check him out on the Instagram page where he will be debuted. Hello, and welcome to Everything But the Building, a podcast about the people, places, and history behind the profession of landscape architecture. I'm your host, Stacy Brucktrup. Today I'm speaking with Wendy Miller, current president of the American Society of Landscape Architects. Wendy gives us a little bit of background on how she found the profession of landscape architecture and her career since graduating from North Carolina State University. In addition to her professional work, Wendy served at the local North Carolina ASLA chapter, has been the chair of two different professional practice networks, and was the vice president for professional practice before beginning her road to becoming ASLA president. With that, let's meet Wendy Miller. All right. Well, thanks for being here, Wendy. Um, How did you originally find the profession of landscape architecture? Well, I was always a science kid and I went off to college uh, assuming I would be pre-med and move into that world. And uh, that was what I'd always thought I would be. So when I got there and started working in labs, I realized it was just not the kind of job that I was probably going to be well suited for. So uh, luckily, I had a summer job working in the campus planning office at the University of Virginia. And that was just this most lucky event. It was an eye opening moment for me because I knew nothing about planning. I knew nothing about architecture or landscape architecture. And so uh, what a beautiful place to do it. University of Virginia, if you've ever been there, is this uh, very stately campus that was designed by um, Thomas Jefferson. And so it had a rich history and a beautiful lawn. And I just learned so much that summer and worked with a landscape architect uh, who then now teaches at the University of Virginia, Nancy Takahashi. So she was my real first introduction to landscape architecture and I kind of fell in love. And then I worked for an architect for many years in Charlottesville. And when I knew uh, it was time to go back to school, I decided, uh, of course, landscape architecture. And I looked around and uh, I was living in North Carolina at that time and North Carolina State was very close by and uh, the chair of the department at University of Virginia said, you should go there, Linda Jewell's terrific and she was one of my major professors. So uh, it was a great experience. That's awesome. Yeah, it seems like a lot of us find the profession accidentally. Could you then fill us in on your professional career since starting with your MLA from NCSU? Yeah, absolutely. I. Um, When I got out of school, it was the mid eighties, things were a little bit tough in the economy. So that's kind of relevant, I'm sure to today as well. So uh, I found a job working with a small one man firm and 
he taught me so much. It was such an excellent experience out in the field, you know, looking at sites and just having that one-on-one -on -one experience of learning about each individual site and the needs of the program that he was devising for that particular project. He had a really interesting scope of work, but he just couldn't keep me employed full time. So uh, I looked around and uh, luckily I had uh, a good friend that I had gone to school with who was working uh, in the urban design section at the city of Raleigh. So temporary position opened up. That's sort of how things go. And I went and began working there um, doing uh, interesting work with ordinances as well as a community appearance commission. And, uh, you know, who knew? I, I didn't know much about local government and the experience of working in local government. And it was a great fit. And so I, I stayed there and I, I slogged through some ordinances like the sign ordinance and the landscape ordinance. And, um, and then just also doing this work with the community appearance commission was really based on outreach with, um, different uh, agencies as well as also developing an awards program. So it was a it was a really wide ranged experience as well as just working on other planning projects within the department. So it was a great fit. And then um, I had to move because my husband's a furniture designer and we moved up here into this area of North Carolina where there's a lot of furniture industry. And as luck would have it, the city of Winston-Salem was looking for someone who had exactly the experience I had in their urban design section. So I. I slipped right on in, uh, helped them develop a, an appearance cushion for this community, expanded the scope of that to include uh, looking at public review and guiding a little bit better how we were doing our public uh, projects in the community and making sure that there was uh, aesthetic component as well as, uh, you know, that they were well designed and functional for the community. But then again, the economy in the early 90s got a little shaky and, uh, the department was really looking uh, like the, there were gonna be some layoffs and I had a opportunity to move into transportation and that was just a completely different uh, set of skills and work. And I, I loved that too, in a, in a way. It took me a long time to kind of settle into knowing what that was gonna be about. Uh, I would say, gotta learn the acronyms first. That was absolutely 100% necessary to speak to the architects and engineers and other folks that were working on projects. But, um, and so there was a power in acronyms. I learned that, but uh, over time, it was really, uh, I began to realize how much the public realm is in the streetscape and in the right of way and how important that is, you know, for both uh, people that are traveling through your communities as well as you on your daily commutes or uh, how you get around. Um, and I think it was a, it was a dynamic time because federal policy was changing quite a lot in the early 90s and they were looking more at long range planning and thinking about how to make things multimodal. Uh, most state DOTs at that time were very focused on the vehicles and the, and the trucks and how they were moving through communities. And it was all about increasing capacity, not very much about making sure that uh, bicycle and pedestrians were accommodated. So I saw that completely evolve over the time that I worked in transportation um, to the point where you know, we were doing quite a bit more uh, planning for corridors that would include bicycle and pedestrian accommodations. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, in fact, in my, my last uh, project before I left the city uh, after 25 years was uh, to include a multi-use uh, path along an existing uh, old freeway. And so it was being rehabilitated through the downtown. It was a very tough project. There were there's a lot of public involvement that went into that because we were actually trying to shut the road down 
for the period of time that it would be under construction, which was pretty bold move. Uh, we got a lot of support for doing that actually through the public involvement process. People would prefer to actually have the short pain versus the long annoyance of the project under construction. So we worked really hard with the state uh, DOT as well as some federal folks to both find the funds, which is something I really enjoy is looking, you know, at any kind of funding source to say, how can we insert this project into this um, already well underway uh, rehab of a freeway. So we found some congestion mitigation funds. We found some locally attributed funds. And then we got the buy-in of the bike community as well as um, some, some enlightened elected officials and were able to sneak this multi-use path into the existing right-of-way corridor. So that was huge. It, it took a lot of a lot of persistence and persuasion to get that to happen, but um, it's under construction. They opened the freeway, let's see, they closed the freeway uh, in the fall of 2018, and it opened uh, about two months ago. In February, they had a big grand opening and everyone got to walk on the freeway, and I can see where the multi-use path is gonna be now. There's, there's bridges, a few uh, tunnels have been built, and so we still have to connect all the pieces, but it'll eventually connect uh, east to west uh, in an area that's just had no real safe travel for the bicyclists and pedestrians. So it's going to be really exciting. So that's a, that's probably my favorite project. You may have asked me that later. I can't remember, but um, that was just a great way to kind of end that part of my career and start the next thing doing similar kinds of work. But um, I, you know, I, I think that there's just a lot to be, had in transportation. I, I know we'll talk about the uh, transportation PPN later and some of the other places that I found landscape architects, but um, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a wide open space for practice. And I think there's a lot of folks I still think don't really quite understand that there's, um, there's a real need for landscape architects in transportation. So uh, I always like to make a pitch for that. I also like to always, this new sort of moment of uh, realization and is that you know, funding transportation is usually a pretty stable pot of money. Um, the federal government does always want to support transportation, the movement of people and goods. And so, um, you know, it's an area of practice where there's some stability, which is kind of a nice thing when times were tough. So, uh, it, or like I like to say, if you ever watch the show, The Arrested Development, uh, mm -hmm. there's always money in the banana stand. <laughs> there's always money in transportation. So uh, that's kind of a good thing to know. But yeah, so uh, there was a lot of planning. It was a lot of public outreach. I learned a lot in terms of, um, you know, dealing with an angry public. You know, it's hard to get people involved when it's uh, very amorphous. You're just talking about very, very general, you know, concepts of either how would you like this facility to look or where would you like these things to be in the future. But when the road project actually goes into that next phase of they've picked an alignment, then you get all of the people <laughs> who never cared to come out and talk when it was, it was more of a planning phase. So it's, it's been a, it's been an interesting ride. I really, uh, and now I, you know, I continue to do that in terms of being a sub consultant with other engineers on, um, I've got some projects that are uh, in local communities doing streetscapes as well as wayfinding and um, mitigation projects. So it's been, it's been great. Yeah, transportation planning is a whole different scope of landscape architecture that a lot of people don't understand, in addition to not knowing what we do in the first place. Right. 
Yeah, and absolutely. With, with the different types of technology uh, systems that are going in and rapidly changing transportation quarter planning, uh, could you explain how we as landscape architects are poised to be at the forefront of those planning efforts? Yeah, I actually, uh, about five or six years ago, uh, was at a meeting, um, and I, I, it's another group that I, I'll just give a little introduction to, which is that um, somewhere along the line, I was uh, sent to the Transportation Research Board annual meeting in Washington, which is this enormous gathering of everyone who does anything with any kind of surface uh, or other forms of transportation. And um, I, I was invited to join this committee called the Landscape and Environmental Design Committee. And they are a long-standing group. They've been involved in you know, scenic byways and um, all kinds of uh, roadside uh, uh, improvements to the transportation system. So um, they've been around for about 80 years, which is pretty amazing since the very beginning of the Transportation Research Board. So uh, they always do a, uh, a webinar or a seminar every year. And one year it was on to tree or not to tree. And it was about you know, tree planting along the clear recovery in the right of way. And, uh, you know, the engineers were taking a heavy lead in terms of, you know, not having any obstructions in the right of way. And, you know, you just know that people really want these tree line corridors. I mean, it's just a beautiful stately way to enter a city or a town. It's your, your main street. So I had this epiphany that, you know, we had this new technology, these autonomous vehicles that were coming into production. Uh, it's very clear where the future was going. And I thought, they're not going to hit trees. They're going to know where they are. <laughs> we can plant trees and they can be close to the edge of the right of way. And it's, uh, it's not going to be that kind of um, driver error issue that it's been in the past. So I brought that up and everyone poo pooed me. It was like, no, this is never going to happen. And I thought, yeah, it might be happening. <laughs> I think it's going to happen. So I think now what that made me realize is that we really need to be in on the discussion and the decisions when, say, the new green book gets written, uh, which is you know sort of that guide to how you develop your right of way, um, and make sure that um, we aren't just putting more of these little autonomous vehicles on the roadway because we can increase the capacity, but we're also thinking about how do we reallocate the whole right of way. You know, there could be much uh, tighter lane widths. These things can really run on a little track. They don't even, frankly, need much pavement. They know where they're going. Um, we could be looking at you know, how to do better stormwater management, how to do better green infrastructure. So I think landscape architects are poised to be involved in the uh, discussions and first future policies for how we reallocate right-of-way and make sure that we're able to do green infrastructure in our right-of-ways. We're also looking at uh, people first and making sure that um, we're not building these right-of-ways just for these uh, little vehicles that can uh, essentially take less space and take more of the right-of-ways. So we want to be sure we balance this and make sure that it's not, you know, a nightmare in the future, but that we actually uh, maybe do a better job, you know, provide more absolute, you know, social space within the right-of-way as well. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. I think that uh, there's some good people looking at that. I've, um, through Transportation Research Board, also met uh, Joe Favor, who's over at the University of Minnesota, and he's been doing some research on how to relook at the right of way, both in a kind of urban settings, commercial settings, developing typologies for that. So uh, I think that that is an exciting realm right now, and I think uh, more people should be thinking about that. And I'm looking forward to the federal highway folks also taking the lead in terms of policy development and making sure that the local communities have that support. And, you know, it's always this kind of 
top down, bottom up, and you've got to balance uh, making sure your local needs are being met. And I think there's also some friction there to come, by the way, which is that local communities need to be able to control the situation and, um, and not feel that they've been uh, stymied or hampered by the state and federal governments uh, not letting them do that. So we'll see how that shakes out in the future. I think that could be challenging. I mean, some of the things I'm hearing is that most of the transportation systems funded through the federal gas tax. And, uh, and so, you know, without that source of income, if everything is becoming electrified in the future, how do you, how do you fund the system? So we're going to have to look at more challenging ways of doing that. Some people are thinking about monetizing the curb. Uh, you can already tell where these vehicles are. And do we just uh, essentially tax them for that use for the period of time they're sitting at the curb? Or do we actually, uh, which has been talked about for a long time, look at how much, um, usage through vehicle miles traveled. And, uh, you know, that's obviously data that you can get now. So, and that's a whole other topic. I, I can go off on this completely, but, um, uh, you know, there's so much data out there and how do you get that data? And that's huge for communities. They need to be able to get access to that because I think onto another slight topic that's similar in terms of new technologies is the micromobility is huge in small communities and campus towns and uh, I think right now, you know, we're, we're in a bit of a flux because with um, everyone being quarantined or at least living internally to their spaces, uh, that explosion of use probably has stopped to some extent. I'm hearing that anecdotally. So, but I think that the micromobility was becoming um, something that was starting to get dealt with fairly well. They were corralling them. They were finding ways to manage uh, those being located so that they're convenient and they're not just uh, the low income folks as well as uh, you know, everyone in the community and not that they were being just tossed here and there on the right of way as well. So um, lots of challenges, lots of opportunities, I think. Uh, and most, most of the, the towns that have had those show up, you know, they've, they know that they've got to do a better job or else uh, there's going to be <clears throat> more friction with pedestrians and, and other modes. It's a, wide open space in terms of, you know, how are we going to change the way we're using it? And I know we'll talk about this a little later, but I think right now I'm seeing that because people are um, essentially trapped within their, um, their homes or their small spaces that they can get into, the right of way, because it's not quite so busy, is becoming an opportunity to have some social distancing. You know, some cities have looked at Market Street in San Francisco is now closed to vehicles, personal private vehicles, and open to taxis and buses. So, so the fact that Market Street was able to close their, uh, their, a section of their right-of-way to personal vehicles, but now open to transit, trolleys, uh, micromobility bikes, pedestrians, I think that's pretty amazing. And, um, you know, urban areas are beginning to sort of reclaim that space because, uh, the vehicles are just becoming overrun. I mean, I think that's the big fear too with autonomous vehicles that, or certainly with the, the uh, personal uh, transportation networks, the Ubers and Lyfts, is they're, they're not reducing the amount of vehicles. They're actually starting to increase the load. So um, there's some, again, there's going to be some control of how that uh, is managed in the future. And some urban areas are already feeling it and seeing the increase in volume and uh, congestion and, you know, air quality issues. So um, lots to keep tuned into for sure. Right. Yeah. I, it's a really fascinating subject. I try to get to at least one session on it at the national conference every year. And even in one year time, 
frame. It's amazing the advances that are being made. Well, oh yeah, my, my it is. Time. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's one of the fun things that I've gotten to do in the last two years is I go to the pre-meeting where the education committee for the American Society of Landscape Architects they meet. It's a small group of folks. It's a it's a committee. The big commitment. They meet. They essentially brainstorm on what are the huge topics that are out there right now that we need to know about, and they break into these small groups and then they um, then they commit to actually soliciting topics and then you know it goes out as a general call and there's a set of ta of uh, tracks that we're looking at but they they commit to sort of ushering some through they then have to read all of those they read everything that comes in and then they have to rank them so big job so if you're ever interested in that it's a it's a it's a great thing but it's a big commitment i'm, I'm always impressed by these volunteers that work for asla that just give so much time and energy. So I'm off on another topic as well, but um, yeah, super. And I've always as, as well, because to be able to go to the meeting and feel that I was providing my agency with some worth, always went to the transportation activities. And, you know, it's, it's good to see what people are doing. I mean, you know, you think about um, crime prevention in the public realm. I mean, SEPTED, another acronym, um, has been a huge issue, certainly in terms of safety now with vehicles becoming, you want to do that in a way that's uh, not intrusive. And there's some folks out there in our profession, there's some landscape architects like Len Hopper has been really instrumental in looking at that and thinking about how to, you know, both make our streetscapes safe and our public spaces safe, but also still have them be aesthetically pleasing and useful and attractive to the community and a, and a, and a benefit, not a detriment. All right. So you said that you were on the transportation research board and in addition to that you were also a past chairperson for the landscape architecture and transportation ppn could you explain a little bit more about that ppn for those who may not have heard about it absolutely well uh, i would always recommend that um, you get into as many of the ppns as you find interest in because that is a great resource. If your chapter is a resource for you, I would say your PPN is a huge resource for people who are doing the kinds of work you're interested in. And you can share all kinds of case studies, best practices. And it's really been a place where I was able to meet other people throughout the country that are either working in DOTs, they're working in uh, county agencies, or they're actually just, they're private sector folks who do those kinds of work. So, you know, they're doing policy, they're doing planning, they're doing the construction, they know about design build, they know about how to bridge the gap between um, their colleagues who are both uh, planners and engineers. So it's a terrific PPN for anybody who's interested in transportation work. And, and they do a great job of also sharing current news, uh, making sure that the sessions are available at our annual conference. They identify training opportunities. You can go onto their LinkedIn site. Just yesterday I went and saw uh, there's going to be a, um, a webinar tomorrow on reclaiming the right of way. I've already signed up for that. So they really support, they advise the ASLA on, on um, things that are coming in the future and keep the policies up to date uh, so that the rest of the society who may not be doing that sort of work is aware of the kinds of issues that are current. And, um, you know, again, I think it's just sharing that knowledge and having uh, colleagues, you know, that are doing similar kinds of work. So we also always meet in person at the annual conference in the PPN live area. And you get to see the folks <laughs> that you've talked to on the phone once a month. And um, 
and I just found a great set of leadership uh, from all across the country. It's, it's, uh, and, and as those folks continue to be your colleagues and friends throughout the time that you're working in your profession. I, I, I've kept in touch with all of them over the years and they continue to serve ASLA and other functions as well. So the PPN has been um, a great resource and it's a good way to get your work that you're doing out um, because we have on our website images to share as well as uh, in the field we do case studies and I'm very proud to say that I do a lot of coordination between my transportation research board committee because we're landscape architects as well and the PPN. So that shared interest has been great and we, we go to each other's events. So um, the transportation research board mid-year meeting that we hold every summer um, has been a place that we've also recruited people into the PPN and vice versa. So there's a lot of uh, correlation between those things and you provide the uh, continuing credits that we all need for licensure. So it's been a great uh, way to get to know what other people are doing. So in addition to, you're a very busy lady, <laughs> but in addition to the transportation PPN, you're also um, a past PPN for the Public Practice Advisory Committee, correct? Yes. Yeah, I'm uh, not sure how I found that. I think uh, after I had done a lot of my chapter service, I, I slowed down just a bit and I was involved with the PPN always, but um, I signed up for committees. And so I picked a few that I thought were interesting and I um, ended up being assigned to the Public Practice Advisory Committee, which really was a, a, something I didn't know existed either, but it was, a, it was a resource for folks who are in public practice to, um, you know, which is a, a subset really of the larger uh, membership. I mean, I would say most people obviously are in uh, private practice, but the public practitioners don't always probably get the same level of support in terms of uh, tools for what they need. And so as uh, the Public Practice Advisory Committee, we did a number of things uh, over the time that I was involved in and uh, did do my time chairing that committee as well and then continued on because I really did feel that it needed um, to continue to have someone from the transportation sector as well as, you know, the other folks that are involved in it. But so you get you know, people who are doing parks planning, you've got folks that are in um, municipal governments and other ways, federal government, uh, park service folks, uh, forest service. So you get to see a bigger range of what public practice is like and, and some of the support issues that they need. They don't often get supported in terms of their membership, but they do get supported in terms of their continuing education. So that was very important to us in that committee to make sure that public practitioners had content at the meeting. So we would support submission of, uh, we would all work hard to also support the, the submission of, of sessions for the annual conference, but also we would call out when we got the listing of what was gonna be coming for the, the, the next year, we would find those things and make them very easy for you to locate. So when you were trying to justify as a public employee going to this conference, you could say, here are all the great things I'm gonna be able to bring back to my community from our annual conference. So that was important, but we also started this policy shapers interview, which was something that everyone would commit to do one or two of those during their term on the committee. And you would interview a public practitioner and they could be an elected official. Sometimes they were a uh, long time, you know, state Greenway, my person was a, someone who was essentially what we call the father of the Greenway system here in North Carolina, Bill Flournoy. Um, so you do a one-on-one -on -one interview and then you write that up and it became a part of our land uh, 
publication that comes out, you know, to the membership every two weeks. And so just to give the people an eye on, you know, landscape architects that are practicing in the public sector and what they do and how much they influence what happens in your community. I mean, as either the director of a parks and rec department or uh, a mayor or, a, you know, the head of public works or are doing some sort of new uh, green infrastructure program within a community. So, uh, and academics, we also did uh, interview them as well. So it was, uh, it was a good committee to get that broader perspective on um, how we're all doing our work and how we, uh, how we change the world. <laughs> it was really exciting. So I love that committee. I mean, I still am uh, very interested in when I went on to become the vice president of professional practice, uh, then you have a little portfolio of committees that you work with. And so I had professional practice, which is a very big committee with a lot of subcommittees, but the public practice advisory committee was one of mine. And so I love to sit in and hear what they were still doing. So, yeah, so I love it. I'm always encouraging people now to get involved in committees because um, that's a, that's a very powerful way to, um, continue to shape what we do for membership. Um, really important. Yeah, and I feel like that's a different sector of landscape architecture that people don't think about that. Yes, when you are going to City Hall for your permits, there is a good chance that there's a landscape architect there who's going to be reviewing them and they've gone through the same training and they're just looking at it from a different perspective. I like to tell people you want a landscape architect in that public sector job because not only are they going to help get your project through the process, but when I was working in public sector, I was always uh, sure that we were making sure landscape architects were uh, on the listings for RFQs, RFPs. We were looking at them. They were part of the process um, and they had an equal chance of getting uh, the lead on many of our jobs. And so, I mean, I knew what kind of good products I would be getting. So it was important to me. All right, so in addition to everything that we've already talked about, um, you took office in November for ASLA. So what initiatives have you personally been working on since you started? Well, you know, the very first thing, uh, and it was probably you get a nice year as a president-elect to, to sort of see how things are, are flowing and uh, to, to work your way into the position. You don't just get thrown in cold. So uh, we actually started in the late summer uh, developing a search committee for our new leadership at ASLA. So that was very exciting. That's probably been the, the most important thing that happened really in the fall, which is we, uh, we've got this really great um, uh, multi-generational, multicultural uh, search committee. So we've got uh, a good range of uh, landscape architects that are longtime practitioners and also public sector and academics and uh, women and men and uh, people of color. So we're just, we're really excited about that. And they are working very diligently to uh, help us. We've developed a prospectus that's been out on the street since uh, late, no, let's see, late February. And I believe we're getting some candidates coming in. So I'm looking forward to that actually being uh, full circle between the time I started in November and when I will hand off that Frederick Law Olmsted gavel in the, in the fall, but it, um, it's going to be exciting. So we're going to have, we're looking for dynamic new leadership, you know, something that can take us into another, another, uh, another generation essentially of how we're serving membership. So that's number one. Our climate action committee was formed 
And I, I'm so excited by that because we've got Vaughn Rinner, who's a past president, uh, leading that and that she's got such a committed, passionate heart for that. And she's got a great committee of her own. And so um, she and I had talked about that quite a lot and were able to get that established in January. And they have hit the ground and they've been working with the Landscape Architecture Foundation. They've been working with the Council of Educators on Landscape Architecture to be sure that we're incorporating climate science into the curriculum for students now. So they, uh, I think, are going to be a great new addition to what's been one of our biggest strategic goals is to be addressing climate change as a profession and also providing business tools. You know, what are, what are we, what do we do with just out there in the field? You know, an everyday landscape architect needs to really be sure they're always looking at their projects now in terms of climate change and how, how we're doing what we do, how we're, you know, it's, it's across the country. It's not just coastal regions. It's, you know, we've seen huge flooding in the Midwest. I'm sure you experienced some of that uh, in St. Louis this last summer. There's just been, uh, I think that we're, you know, we, we've, we're on the cusp of this and, uh, or we're beyond it in many places. So I, I think everyone's now seeing that it's really a, a, a major part of our practice. So climate action, diversity, equity, inclusion, we've been working really hard through our um, diversity summits. And now we, we're sort of stepping back from some of those bigger events, but we're also now going forward with uh, making that uh, just a really uh, a strong focus of what we're doing this year. So those are, those are some of the big topics, uh, hoping to have had some really good discussion on those in the spring, but I think we're gonna have to look at new ways to uh, gain that um, knowledge from our uh, trustees uh, over the summer. And streamlining the governance, you know, I think we've been in good financial shape, but I think we also as a, as a society need to uh, shepherd our resources. So I think we're looking at how we streamline some of our processes and uh, advocacy has been something we've done as a very big event and it's, it's a great leadership opportunity. But we're going to try and do that more strategically in the future. We're going to wait until we really have Congress in place and we, we've been working on developing our own unique legislation in terms of climate change. And that is perfect timing in a way because we have enough time to work on it and then begin to um, implement that. So uh, I, I am luckily following in great footsteps and uh, lots of the stuff that we've started, we just need to keep it moving and have it get reshaped um, and be more useful to the membership. Uh, that, that's one thing for me as well. Um, and then of course, what we've experienced in the last month, I think that's changed everything. Uh, it's changed how we're having our uh, governance meetings. It's going to change how we look at um, providing services for membership. So uh, it may change everything for the whole year. I have no idea really where I'm headed at this point. I think we're all just hoping um, that we can see the opportunities and then uh, do the best for our members um, to keep their practices functioning and uh, making sure that we're giving them the tools they need. So, Right, yeah, and I know that ASLA has been working really hard in light of all the recent events with COVID-19 and the self-isolation orders. Um, can you fill us in? I know a little bit more being on the CPC meeting a few days ago, um, but could you fill us in a little bit more on what ASLA National has been working on? Uh, yes, we've just uh, issued a, a, um, a location, a sort of a, a website one-stop for uh, COVID-19 resources. So I'm supposed to go ahead and give you that uh, website information, which would be asla.com slash 
COVID resources. So if you go there, um, you're going to find sort of the virtual business resources. Um, we've done a webinar already on remote working, and I believe that will also be up online and available to others, um, which I guess is some great tips. I think I saw last night on Twitter that um, there's some uh, there's some additional tools in Zoom that you don't really necessarily know how to use. So um, check those webinars out. I think we're going to be having more of that over time. Um, how to get disaster relief through the Small Business Administration loans and other resources for that. I know everyone's looking for that currently, and that's um, very challenging because uh, we want to keep our people employed, and I believe there's some ways to do that now um, and get essentially a grant program from the government. We'll have professional development resources. Uh, one of the things we've instituted for April is there's going to be sort of a best of from the conference. So there are three free webinars for uh, continuing education credits, so definitely take advantage of that. Um, I think I've heard already people are signing up, so that's good news. And then for resources for educators and students, I think that's been a very big challenge. Everyone's had to scramble uh, within the university systems. I've talked to a few educators and I myself have been participating in Zoom meetings as how to, how to do that online education. I think we've always been looking at that as a future option, but now we just had essentially compressed into a very short period of time how to manage suddenly doing uh, a design course online. And I think that, you know, there's, there's still a lot of learning to be done and, and uh, a lot of sharing can occur on that. And then also for the um, parents who are stuck at home with their children doing uh, online education and trying to figure out how to do that, we have, of course, our activity books and lesson plans. There's some things out there really for um, younger children to be involved with, which is kind of fun. So students of all ages can do that. You know, community tools. We all kind of want to keep connecting because I find that when I do one of these Zoom events, it's just, it's heartening for me because you can work solo, you're solo in your own office at home, but it's just refreshing to see some more faces, to know everybody's all right, to begin to feel like we're still a community of folks working on a project together. So uh, I think that is just essential. And I, I, I know there's some virtual happy hours going on. There's some virtual lunch gatherings. So I encourage everyone to take advantage of that, whatever resources we have for you there, as well as where you can find them elsewhere. And then of course, federal, state and local government resources. We've always got those on there, but um, there's also new information to be had. So um, do check that out and we'll keep in touch. I, I know um, we want to make sure everyone is, is able to function in this time that's so tough. And, and a lot of what we do, you know, because it's our mission, is to um, is to provide fellowship actually, and that's important to me. I think that's why I always came to ASLA working in an engineering uh, department. I needed to find other landscape architects. I needed to talk to my people. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's what we're here for. Yeah, I know the lineup of items that ASLA has been rolling out for support throughout this COVID crisis. It it's really heartening to see, and hopefully that'll keep everyone in touch and moving right along. Um, it's it's going to be tough, but I think we're we're trying to we're finding good ways around it, and I know they're yeah. doing a lot of good work. Yeah, they are. They're a great staff. I mean, I I can't say enough about the folks that work for us there in the center. Uh, and I do like to tell people if you get to Washington when we can all travel again. What I mean, you've been there, you know, I mean, the center is just this great resource. It's very welcoming. We've done a lot of 
events in the lobby. I've, I've done, as a part of my Transportation Research Board, I've done uh, some panel discussions. We get great uh, turnout from the local community of landscape architects in the DC area. And then there's the green roof, which is always terrific just for a little time on the roof, but also for social events. So, and I just, the staff themselves, they're just a committed, dedicated group of folks who love what we do. And so you can tell it, uh, it gives them a lot of personal satisfaction. I think that, you know, we're a, you know, we're a worthy cause. <laughs> we're a worthy group of folks to work with. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And on top of everything they're working on for those resources, we've kicked off World Landscape Architecture Month today. Yes. <laughs> Can you fill yes. us in on the initiatives? <laughs> it's uh, been a transition to more digital and online presence for Landscape Architecture Month, but I know they have some things for that also. Yeah, this is a great month for us. I mean, I, I would normally, I would be everywhere traveling because this is when everybody has a some events going on about World Landscape Architecture Month or, or certainly just uh, celebrating Earth Day and all the many things that we do. You know, in the past, we've done the outreach campaign based on um, answering the question, what is landscape architecture? And we've used those cards and, you know, people take pictures and um, post it with that. But this year, we're actually changing the focus to answer the question, why landscape architecture? So that's really a, a new way of looking at things. Um, so that frame really allows us to make it a more personal, emotional connection to, um, to various audiences to promote the profession. So it's, just, it's such an important and essential part of our world, our community, the joy we have, the tranquility, warmth, ability, success. We have all these great words that we're using, I think, to, to latch onto this. And, um, and we've really started a whole program where I am actually going out and talking about um, you know, change grows here in our profession and life grows in the spaces that we create. So I, it's a very exciting time. I mean, we've really um, developed this whole new way of um, speaking about what we do to the community at large. So this is our month and this is when we do it. And I'm really looking forward to it. Um, you know, in the past, I think we've also had our, uh, our different chapters take over and our students take over. So, um, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how this one's going to evolve. If you're going to be involved or if you're interested, it's at, uh, the hashtag is, well, it's at National ASLA. And um, people can participate via social media by recording or posting videos about why they are landscape architects and how landscape architecture affects communities. They can post pictures of their favorite landscapes with Life Grows Here as the social media tag. So that'll be exciting. Um, and then the hashtags could be or should be uh, hashtag WLAM2020 and then hashtag life grows here. So that's, uh, those are two ways you can uh, tag your social media and join the big community of folks that are being involved. And then be sure to go to our website because that's another good resource as well, which is aslade.org slash W-L-A-M, which stands for World Landscape Architecture Month. I think I covered it. I do appreciate the staff helping me uh, with all the good things that I know they're doing that I may not be aware of at all times. So, Perfect. Yeah. And I'll link to those, uh, like I said, on the show notes. Thank and you. I'm actually going to have to get on our Instagram and social media pages and send in some links and some photos for it. That's a great uh, segue from World Landscape Architecture Month into a vision for the profession. 
going forward through the rest of your term. Hopefully we'll all be able to start getting out and going to more events and back into more design and everything once we're all released from our isolation orders. What type of vision do you have for the profession over the next few months until your term is over? Yeah, I, you know, I think if I had answered this a month ago or two months ago, it would be different. But I think now uh, when I looked at this question, I think that this is, this is an interesting time to, we're all sort of looking in in a way and then also looking out because we are looking out a window often or we're, but we're introspective in the sense that we're in our spaces and a lot of time to think. And I feel like this is a perfect opportunity to really figure out where, where we can find new opportunities, where we can really take the lead in some stuff that, you know, we maybe haven't um, seen our places before. So, so in terms of the streetscape, I think I've been watching with this situation in New York City and some other uh, very dense urban areas, what we said earlier is that the streetscape is kind of an open space again, and the cars have not been in it. <laughs> and I think we need, this is a great time because people are actually receptive now to hearing people first. Let's reshape these spaces. So that is one thing I would love to see um, not lost. I think that also because so much has stopped in terms of the manic pace of travel and other things that we're also seeing some changes in our environment. We're seeing, you know, the skies might be a bit clearer and, you know, we're seeing how climate change and the changes we've made can, I mean, it's horrible that we've had to make them in such an abrupt way, but maybe there's that positive feeling like we can, we can turn the ship around with climate change. If we, if we really do think about it in the way we've had to now. So I think there's a lot of, actually, there's a lot of silver linings in this. And I, I love the thought that, you know, parks and open space have become so beloved and valuable. And you, like you said the other day, you're seeing people in the park that you've never seen before. I've seen all my neighbors are out and they, they just have to be out walking and they're, keeping their distance, but they're being social. So I'm, I think that what we do is never more important now than it's been before. So I, that's my vision that we're going to, as I even said in the letter, I said, you know, I'm optimistic. I think that when we all come out of this, people are just going to, they're going to be back in those spaces that we've created. And it's going to be such a joyous feeling of children getting back on that playground equipment and you know, being on the street and watching people go by and sitting in an urban plaza and, uh, meeting somebody that you've never talked to before. Thank you again, Wendy, for taking time out of your busy schedule to chat with me. All of the information that Wendy mentioned can be found in the show notes on the website, which can be found at everythingbutthebuilding.com. I've also started a resources tab in the menu that has direct links to info about the World Landscape Architecture Month Instagram initiative and the ASLA COVID-19 resources. If you have any questions or comments, please visit everythingbutthebuilding.com and leave a message. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or send an email at ebtbpodcast at gmail.com. Cover art for the podcast was created by at James E. Butler, and music for the podcast was created by Adam.